This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 67, Discipleship. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I'm your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about the crosses we have to bear for Jesus. If that sounds painful, you don't know the half of it. I've been reading The Cost of Discipleship by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Grace that does not lead to discipleship is beneath the dignity of our calling. I've been hearing excuses, one after another, and they all mean the same thing. Lord, I just don't want you. I've been playing Otis. Play the game to the best of your ability, but don't get discouraged if your ability doesn't amount to much. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Well, let's start with the bad news. If you want to come to Jesus Christ, you're going to have to carry a cross. There is absolutely no negotiation on that. And if carrying a cross sounds complicated or involved or painful or inconvenient or embarrassing, shameful even, it probably is. And if it doesn't come across that way and you claim to be a disciple, may I humbly but directly suggest maybe you're not carrying a cross. After all, how could carrying a cross possibly be anything other than that? And let's not be confused about this. The text is quite clear in many passages. I'll refer you to Luke chapter 9, which is probably the most obvious one, but there are many others, starting in verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, not can, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And he continues talking about the benefit in doing this. This is not a, a worthless exercise, as it were. This is something that is that is worthwhile. We need to be doing this. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That is, what's the point in doing something else that's going to get you something that you can't keep? He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God. We are in this position now where we are looking at Jesus Christ on the throne, and we have a choice as to whether or not to become his disciple, whether or not to accept servitude in his name. And Jesus is, is all about honesty. He's all about being forthright. He's not going to sell us a pig in a poke here. He says, if you want to do this, you have to carry a cross. And the cross that we carry is not of our own choosing. There's no negotiation here. There's no arguing about whether um, it's going to hurt or not. It's going to hurt. It is going to be interfering necessarily with the choices that you would make otherwise. There's, there's no getting around that. You're not going to be able to live the life that you want all things being equal, and serve Jesus. You're going to have to make sacrifices. And the sacrifices that you make may not seem reasonable, even in the context of other people's sacrifices. Peter wrestles with this in John chapter 21, uh, after having been told more or less what's going to happen to him, that he is going to be bound up and taken where he does not want to go. And it's it may be a little vague to you and me, as to what exactly that means, but Peter understands it's pretty obvious. He's going to die for this cause. And his immediate reaction is to turn to his friend John and say, well, what about him? And Jesus, you don't worry about him. This is your cross. 
This is your burden. You're either up for it or you are not up for it. And Jesus gives the same admonition, the same warning, the same challenge to all of us. And he does it over and over again. Somebody says, well, I, I don't much care for the, the cross that I have been given. Like we're at some kind of buffet line. Like we're picking and choosing crosses. Can you imagine just going through the, the cafeteria, as it were, trying to pick out crosses? Well, this cross seems a little bit too heavy. This cross seems a little bit too prickly. This cross is not going to make friends where I would like to have friends. And, and so therefore, I, I would like to have some kind of convenient cross, one that doesn't cost me much. I promise you this, the cross that Jesus requires you to bear will cost you everything. And he is absolutely straightforward about this. There is no confusion about this, just like it was with Peter. In the moment, it looked like serving Jesus was, was interesting and, and exciting and maybe a little edgy or whatever. But even during the ministry of Jesus, Peter should have realized, and hopefully did realize, at least to a certain degree, the magnitude of this choice. In Matthew chapter 19, where the group encounters this, this rich young ruler, as we oftentimes call him, Mark and Luke tell the same story. And this man is not up for it. And we sometimes gloss over one of the most important parts of this challenge. After having affirmed that he does, in fact, keep the commandments and such, Jesus looks at this man and says, if you would be perfect, give up all your possessions and come follow me, he says. It's not just that he's challenging him to give up his possessions. He's challenging him to give up his life. And he was not willing to do that. And Peter and the rest of the apostles find this to be an opportunity for pride. Because that's exactly what they did do. If you think it's unreasonable for Jesus to ask us to give up everything, look at Peter. Peter did give up everything for Jesus. And maybe he didn't fully understand what he was getting into, but he did it. And he did not back off from that, even when it was obvious it was going to cost him his life. Such is the case for us, and we need to come to grips with this. Now, that's the bad news. Jesus bore his cross. We're going to have to bear our cross. The good news is this. When we choose to do this, as he told the rich young ruler, you will have treasure in heaven. The investment that we are making in eternity is going to be more than worth whatever kind of sacrifice we make in the flesh in the short term. Jesus promises this, promises this to us. Discipleship is worth the cost. But we must pay the cost. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and I hope I'm not mangling the German just horribly there, apologies if I am, was a German citizen, a young man living in the early part of the 20th century. He watched the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, and he was horrified, as many Germans were. We oftentimes talk about the toll that was taken on minorities and religious extremists and, and foreigners under the reign of Hitler. Uh, we don't talk a whole lot, at least in my experience, I haven't heard a whole lot of talk about ordinary, average German citizens who were trying to serve the Lord. And of course, Lutheranism uh, 
was the dominant denomination in Germany at the time, and Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran. And the practice of Nazism was not compatible with his faith. Anyone who tries to argue that Hitler was a Christian and somehow his beliefs were compatible with and a necessary extension of his Christian faith simply have no idea what they're talking about. Anyone who would call himself a devout Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, wanted out of Germany in the 1930s. And Bonhoeffer got out, and then he went back, not because he loved the Nazis, but because he loved Germany, and he loved his brethren, and he thought that he could do more help from inside than from outside. And he did a lot of writing, and he did a lot of teaching, and he wound up being sent off to a concentration camp, a series of them, and eventually was executed by the Nazis just a few weeks before the Allies liberated Berlin. But his work continues on, and it's been sitting on my shelf, this particular book, The Cost of Discipleship, the one he's perhaps most known for, has been on my shelf for, for probably 20 years, and I've never read it. I read it recently, and I wish that I had read it earlier. It is a remarkable commentary on what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the fullest sense of the word, not just nominally, but actually committing himself or herself to Jesus Christ. It's all about being a disciple. It's about being a follower. And he has an interesting discussion, an ongoing discussion in the book, a contrast between what he calls costly grace and cheap grace. Grace, of course, is, is how we are saved. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 8, 10 verses or so, talks about, about this and many other passages as well. God sees us in our sinful state, and he chooses to save us. Uh, I may differ somewhat, probably would differ somewhat with Martin Luther and with Dietrich Bonhoeffer as far as how exactly that is applied. But nevertheless, we would agree that God is the one who does the saving for us. But it's critically important that we not use grace as an opportunity to sin the more, as Paul himself argues in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. And part of the treatise of, of Mr. Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship is to bemoan the fact that 400 or so years after the teachings of Martin Luther, his fellow Lutherans had more or less abandoned the idea of discipleship in pursuit of what he calls cheap grace. Grace cost God everything. God so loved the world. You know Romans or sorry, John 3:16 as well as anybody, I'm sure. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And by so loved, uh, I hope you appreciate where this what this actually means. This is not a measurement, a, a ruler as it were to say, did he love God, uh, love mankind this much? No, he loved mankind this much. That's not what the word so means. So is a descriptive term. Do you want to know what love looks like? Look at Jesus on the cross. That's what love looks like. That's how invested the Heavenly Father was in this process. He loved the world in such a way as to send His only begotten Son to the cross to die for our sins in the most humiliating and painful way imaginable. That is a cost that is unspeakably high. As far as God is concerned, grace could not be more costly. And then we as Christians embrace the idea of grace, and take it as an opportunity to live whatever kind of life we want. We cheapen the grace. We treat grace like a common, almost worthless thing. 
And Bonhoeffer is just determined to reject this notion, and I am too. The idea that, that we could accept God, accept God's blessings, accept God's grace, and have it not cost us anything is ridiculous, and it's an offense, really, to the entire gospel message. Again, like we were mentioning in the previous segment, many, many passages, Jesus comes back to this over and over again. I'll refer you to Luke chapter 14 and verse number 25. And, and this is so like Jesus. When he sees these large crowds coming, he responds in a way that, that I probably would not respond. I, I would tend to try to take advantage of the big crowds, try to keep the big crowds, because that's the way my mind works. I bet you your mind is not much different. Jesus repels the big crowds, almost deliberately, it seems like. Verse 25, now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to talk about the man who built the tower that uh, and did not count the cost ahead of time, or the king that wanted to go to war and wasn't quite sure that maybe he had enough soldiers to get the job done, as it were. We count the cost, and if we're going to do it anytime, we need to do it with discipleship. I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. All right, well, let's talk about that. What is that going to mean? Because it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything, he says. That's why he goes on to say in verse number 33, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And again, rich young ruler imagery here. Not saying that you or I or any individual person has to literally divest himself of everything that he owns, but realizing that whatever we have is a gift of God in the first place, and that must be used in his service. And if we're going to be calling ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves by the name of the Lord who died for us, we must be committed to use everything that he gave us to his glory, to his honor. And the idea of using it as some kind of opportunity to push back against God's will. He's asking too much of me. This is too high a cost. That is someone who has no concept of grace. If you would be a disciple of Jesus, you must pay the cost. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Anyone who's heard me preach knows how I love to tell stories. One of my very favorite stories that I tell in sermons regards the great American humorist and author Mark Twain. The story goes that Mark Twain was sitting on his front porch one day, and a neighbor came up to him and asked Mr. Twain, I would like to borrow your axe. Can I borrow your axe? And Mr. Twain said, no. And the neighbor said, well, Mr. Twain, do you mind me asking why? He says, no, I don't mind you asking why. I can't loan you my axe because I plan to eat my soup with it. And the neighbor kind of scratched his head a little bit and said, well, Mr. Twain, if you don't mind me saying so, that's a pretty odd thing to say. I mean, people don't typically eat their soup with an axe. And Mr. Twain said, I know that. But if you don't want to loan your axe to someone, one excuse is as good as another. And that's kind of my, my go-to analogy with regard to excuses. One's good as another. It, if you don't want to do something, if you don't want to cut the grass today like you're supposed to, if you don't want to show up for work, 
if you don't want to go to school, if you don't want to roll out of bed in the morning as far as that goes. What difference does it really make in the big picture? You have a task to do. You're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. And the rationale behind what you are choosing to do or not do isn't nearly as critical as we would like to think it is sometimes. And that is certainly the case with regard to discipleship. Because we actually have several instances in the text of of would-be disciples, people who wanted ostensibly to serve Jesus, who wanted to follow after Jesus and didn't. And there are, we already talked about one, the rich young ruler. There are several others that are mentioned in Luke chapter 9, uh, reading and starting in verse number 52, or 57. We're talking a lot about uh, Luke this, uh, this week. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, that sounds good. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, that's not exactly a pep talk there, is it? That is another call to appreciate the reality and the seriousness of consequences. If you attach yourself to Jesus, you're going to have to carry the cross. You're going to have to pay the penalty. Serving Jesus is is costly in the short term, and certainly it's costly in the long term. The benefits are there, no doubt about that. But you need to understand the downside. He goes on. Verse number 59, he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as far as you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me permit, uh, permit me to say goodbye to those who are at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The text doesn't say whether these two men counted the cost, and decided whether they would actually serve Jesus. The implication is they did not. And the excuses they gave sound on the surface to be reasonable excuses. They do to me anyway. I suspect they probably do to you as well. This one is needing to to bury his father, which may, in the context of the first century, not mean that the funeral is tomorrow. It may simply mean his father is old, his father is elderly, and he's going to need to be there for his family for the foreseeable future. At some point in the future, when his obligations to his father are not there anymore, then he will go and serve Jesus. And likewise with the fellow who is uh, wanting to say goodbye to those at home. What's what's so bad about that? Well, if you know the Bible, especially the Old Testament, Genesis and, and other passages in the Old Testament, you know that goodbyes can last for a week or more. The idea of just going and saying goodbye is not just a hand wave and, hey, how you doing? Uh, We're going to be gone for a while. Uh, Be praying for me. Be thinking about me. I love you. This would typically be a much, much more involved process than that. And one day can very easily turn into a week and a week can turn into a month. Jesus says, no, the time is now. And really that's over, over analyzing the whole situation. It's not about whether the excuse is good or not good. It's about whether you are prepared to obey now or not prepared to obey now. Someone says, I want to follow after you, Jesus, but I have certain conditions. And Jesus says, don't bother. There are no conditions. This is unconditional surrender. This is you doing what I tell you to do or don't. That is a hard pill for most of us to swallow. It's hard for me. I'm sure it's hard for you as well. But this is the price that Jesus requires of us. You There are certain words that don't tend to pop up very much in conversation with discipleship. You don't hear about second. You don't hear about if or after or any word like that that might qualify somehow a person's commitment. It's either do or do not. 
and we have to position ourselves to do and not make so many excuses, not talk about our background or our situation or our time constraints or our money concerns or family matters or any such thing as that. There's always going to be a reason. If I've learned anything about dealing with people in 30 or so years of preaching, it's that. There is always going to be a reason and what seems in the moment to be a very good reason to not do what Jesus is telling you to do. You have to be able to overcome that and push through. Be a disciple at all times. Revelation 3 verse 20, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's our obligation to overcome whatever kind of compulsion we might have, whatever kind of fear we might have, whatever reservation, and open the door and accept what's on the other side. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. The year is 1853. The site is the World's Fair in New York City. A young man by the name of Elisha Otis ascends a wooden platform and asks his handlers to hoist that platform up into the air by way of a series of pulleys and a single rope that is pulling the weight above the ground. Up, 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 up he goes. And the rope is tied off with him suspended in midair. And then he gives the order that the rope be cut. Someone grabs an axe. They lay the axe to the rope, the only rope. And the platform falls. But it only falls a couple of inches. Elisha Otis had invented a safety mechanism to keep platforms like this from falling. And just like that, the Otis Elevator Company was born. Elevators, perhaps more than any other invention in the 19th century, paved the way for modern cities. Nobody wants to walk up 20 flights of stairs, and nobody wants to trust that being hoisted up 200 or plus feet into the air, supported by some ropes, is just going to kind of work out for you. They wanted security. Otis provided that security. Elevators changed everything. And I want to talk about elevators a little bit as we transition into a discussion about the board game called Otis, O-T-Y-S, that clearly takes its name. It's an elevator game. It's clearly derived and giving homage to Mr. Otis and his invention. The point of an elevator is not simply to be safe. You can be safe on the ground. Elevators are not invented so that you can be safe. Elevators are invented so that you can do work without fear. So that you can do what you need to do, what you want to do, and not be afraid that it's going to cost you everything. Spiritual applications to come. 
before I get into that, let me talk a little bit about this board game, which I really enjoy. It's a post-apocalyptic kind of thing, which is not usually my thing, but everything's underwater. And so divers are going down into the ground to find, or into the water rather, to find artifacts, to find supplies, various things that can be cobbled together to fulfill contracts with people. They're trying to recreate the world, essentially, and they need some of this and they need some of that. And we as game players are participating in this process in the ever ubiquitous pursuit of victory points. And it's a race game, basically. You're trying to get to 18 points before anybody else. And I played this game recently, and we've, I've played it three or four times, I suppose, and I played with Tracy just the other day. And I realize how horrible I am at this game. If you don't play very much in terms of board games with me, I talk about it a lot. I, I, this is a, a passion of mine. I play a lot of games. Uh, the assumption may be that I'm really good at these games. And in some games, I am pretty good. Some games, I win a lot. Some, occasionally, you can find a game that I win most of the time. Otis is just a, a mind boggler for me. I enjoy the game, but in terms of making it work, and I'm not going to get into a big discussion about why that's the case, because you probably wouldn't understand it in a seven minute segment. And frankly, I don't understand it. I am completely and totally lost in this game, but I play it anyway. And why is that? Because I like the experience, because this is something that I find to be worthwhile. It is a, a pleasant distraction. Whether I'm completely successful, which I'm basically not, is not really the point. In fact, it's not really connected to the point. I'm not in pursuit of success so much as I am in pursuit of participation and counting myself blessed to be a participant in this game. And I hadn't planned on talking about Elisha Otis in any kind of extensive detail, but as I did a little bit of research for the for this segment, I came to realize how much that has in common with grace. I am willing to get onto the elevator. I'm willing to be hoisted up to the heavens because I have confidence that God has me, that he will catch me. Well, what if I mess up? Well, that's unfortunate, and hopefully you won't, and hopefully you'll be able to manage that. But I assure you, at some point, you will be able to find yourself in a position of compromise where you are... are falling short, and you're plummeting to the depths all the way down to hell. And God catches you in that moment. He will not allow you to perish. What a marvelous thing that is. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 talks about that, that we're walking in the light as he is in the light. And as such, we have fellowship with him, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Well, how can I have sin if I'm walking in the light? Because walking in the light is not about a protracted series of choices, none of which were sinful. That's not what walking in the light is. That's choosing a lifestyle that is submissive to Jesus Christ, calling him Lord, living your life in general in a way that gives him glory. Not a perfect life, although we're striving for that. I would love to win this game one of these days. That would be terrific. But that's not why I play. That's not why I play any of these games. And that's certainly not why I serve Jesus Christ. Because one of these days I'll wake up and be a perfect disciple. That's not it. What we need to do as God's people is assume responsibility, do the best we can in whatever capacity we find ourselves, and trust that he will be forgiving and patient and loving toward us 
Because every day we live is a day that we're going to need mercy. God provides that mercy for us, thankfully, through Jesus. And because of that, we don't have to fall. We can keep going up as far as the Lord God will take us. What a marvelous image that is. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions. And watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.halhammonds.com, for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.